Grieving, I thought I heard one grieving as one who had no hope out in the hallways there and was thinking, how do I comfort that soul uh, with this sermon? I'm not sure it's going to do it for him, so pray for the nursery workers. <laughs> well, this morning we return to our study of some of the events surrounding the Lord's return and a great time that we'll have not only this morning on this Lord's Day, but in some to come as well as we continue on in the study because the next chapter in chapter 5 details even more regarding the future and the coming of the Lord's return. So as we jump back into First Thessalonians 4, I just want to remind you of the scenario that is likely driving Paul's instruction here that you heard Mark read. From what we learn in this chapter and in what we learn from Second Thessalonians as well and all that is revealed there in the end of chapter 1 and in especially into chapter 2, someone has evidently come into this Thessalonian church and begun to teach this church that the present trials that they are going through should be interpreted as if this was the day of the Lord. Now, We will get more into what the day of the Lord means, but that's a technical term, basically, for something that the prophets predicted, which was the unleashing of the judgment of God that would culminate in the return of Christ, judging the nations, bringing victory to his people, and him coming to establish his kingdom on the earth. That's the day of the Lord. And evidently, someone had come into the church, either by some kind of a supposed revelation from God, saying that he spoke as if he were revealing new revelation from God, that the present trials that they were going through was, in fact, that future period known as the day of the Lord. And that was problematic. It was problematic because, most likely, Paul had originally taught this church when he came to them sometime before that there would be a resurrection of the dead that preceded that time known as the day of the Lord. And that's, that's problematic because if Paul taught that and now someone comes in and says, no, here's new revelation from the Lord, this is the day of the Lord, then what happened to all of those who had died? Now some are interpreting this as if there's no hope for them. It's very possible also that one of these false teachers who was spinning this new idea that the present trials were the day of the Lord was also teaching that there is no such thing as a physical resurrection from the dead. We know that that was a prominent idea just before he got to, uh, or just after he had ministered in Thessalonica, he had gone to Corinth, and we know that the church in Corinth was plagued by those who were in that church trying to teach that there is no such thing as a literal physical resurrection from the dead, that the only resurrection you could hope for was spiritual. Furthermore, at the end of Paul's ministry, when he writes Second Timothy, At the very conclusion of his ministry, he even mentions two men by the name of Hymenaeus and Philetus in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And in verse 18, he describes these men, these false teachers, as those who've gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and they upset the faith of some. So if there is no physical resurrection, it's only a spiritual one, or the resurrection has already taken place, then what has happened to those that you know and you love who've died in the Lord? Do they not have hope? What comes next? Because there's a lack of clarity in their minds. If the Apostle Paul had originally taught them, no, the resurrection will precede the day of the Lord, then then what are we to think? 
What are we to do if there's no physical life after death, if there is no hope when faced with death? What do you do with that? That's fascinating to me because where Paul goes with that is not just some argument for resurrection. Where he goes with that is to fix our minds on the future and the coming of the Lord. He says, let me, let me just unveil for you what is coming so that you can interpret your present circumstances correctly. And let me, let me just say, the Bible tells us that if you are in Christ and if you even desire to live a godly life, you will face persecution. There will be suffering. There will be suffering of all kinds that you will experience throughout your life. There will be seasons of great trial that come to you. But don't misinterpret those trials as if that is now the coming wrath of God. It is not the wrath of God. And how do we know that? Because we have a clarity. We have a clarity about what's coming. What's next on the timeline And we have our expectation fixed and focused so that we don't misinterpret what's happening around us. That gives us stability and hope. And the second coming of Christ should do just that for the Christian. Provides stability. Your feet are stable. Trials do not rock you. So how is it that understanding Christ's return, how will that grow our hope? How does it stabilize us by growing our hope? We began looking at this last Lord's Day. And we said that here in this passage, Paul provides us five different ways that understanding Christ's return will grow a Christian's hope. How will that happen? How will understanding Christ's return grow the Christian's hope? Five different ways. We looked at two of them last week. First, Christ's return brings clarity. Christ's return brings clarity. Paul wrote this so that these believers would not be uninformed. Do you see that in verse 13? We do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, because Paul knows. When you're grieving and you have the feelings and the emotions of grief that comes from a certain way of thinking that you have going on in your mind, and you need that thinking corrected by what is true and what you know to be true, Truth governs thinking. Thinking produces confident expectation, stability, hope, feelings of gratitude and expectation. So Paul does not want them to be uninformed. And his assumption is, as I lay out these details about the return of Christ, it provides such clarity so that you have great information that guards the way you think and thus the way you respond. You remember that great truth How you respond to the issues going on around you is related to how you're interpreting them and how you interpret them has to flow from what we know to be true as revealed in the Bible. Your circumstances are never going to lead you in the right direction. Your circumstances are going to make you feel one way, but biblical truth undergirds you and it gives clarity to what's going on around you. So in that regard, Christ's return brings clarity. Secondly, Christ's return dispels grief. You remember the Thessalonians are grieving. And Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep. That's simply the term for those who have died. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no 
hope. Meaning this, Christians are not people defined by grief. Christians are not people defined by grief. As a Christian, you may grieve when a person close to you dies. But your life, even in a moment of sorrow, is not a life defined by that grief. It is a life defined by ultimate hope. That's the difference between the believer in Christ and anyone else. We believe in a sovereign Lord governing all things who has come to this earth, perfectly satisfied a righteous God, given his life on the cross, ascended to heaven and is awaiting at the right hand of God, overseeing and governing all things until the moment that is right for him to return. And he will, in fact, return and all things will eventually be made new and we will be in him. That's our great hope. And we interpret every single suffering and loss in light of that coming hope. So there's no grief that defines us. So you may sorrow, but you will never be defined by grief if you are a believer. In fact, when you find the season of grief creeping in on your soul, you put that to death by reminding yourself of the glories and the certainty of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know a number of you even mentioned this to me. Yes, there is great hope for those who are in Christ, but my sorrow is not for those who've died who are in Christ. My sorrow is for those who I know were not in Christ. And I grieve over them. But in the, in the same way, I would say, we need to guard our hearts from a kind of hopelessness because we know who our God is. Do you not believe that God is all wise? Everything that happens comes from his absolute wisdom. We trust in his wisdom. We may not know the answers. It may sadden our hearts when someone passes who does not necessarily know the Lord, but we rest in his wisdom. We know that his triumph when he comes will be ultimate. And I know this, the Bible reminds me That when he comes and we understand all things as we are to understand them, we understand them in him, there will be no disappointment in any Christian heart. He will wipe away every single tear from our eyes. There can be sorrow now. Can you imagine the glory to be revealed? As Mark was praying through Romans 8 today, I was reminded that even the depth of the trial that we go through here is not worthy to be compared with the eternal weight of glory to come. Do you understand what that means? However deep the sorrow is now, however deep the trial is, whatever the suffering may contain, when we are in glory in Christ, it will be as if we never suffered a moment. We will be so enraptured in the weight of the glory that we see. So even if you cannot understand and you do not necessarily have hope for a loved one who has passed who doesn't know the Lord, one that should cause you to be more aggressive in sharing the gospel with those who do not know Christ, but two, you rest your heart in the wisdom and the sovereignty of God and let it control you. Let it control you. And let your mind run to the return of Christ because that's where our joy will lie in fullness. That brings us to a third way 
that understanding Christ's return will grow the Christian's hope. It's where we pick up from last week. Third, Christ's return revives confidence. Christ's return revives confidence. It's found in verse 14. This is closely related to how the return of Christ dispels our grief. How does it dispel our grief? Verse 15, because, that's the first word, for, because. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What a powerful statement. And here you see it. You remember what we've been saying. What you feel is related to what you think. And what you think needs to be governed by what we know to be true. And here he says, what do you know? If we believe, this is what we know. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that Jesus physically died and was physically raised by the Father from the dead. Do you believe that? Is that what you know to be true? Then how does that govern how you see those who have passed away in Christ? This is the foundation he gives. This is fundamental to Christianity. This is how we think about our departed loved ones and friends. Now you remember, this really is fundamental to who we are as Christians. The Apostle Paul had to deal with that in the Corinthian church. You remember the long chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 where the Apostle Paul had to come back because there were some who were denying that there is any resurrection from the dead. And you remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3. You can jot it down or you can turn over there and and look and read with me. But 1 Corinthians 15 verse 3, Paul reminds us, I delivered to you as of first importance. This is fundamental. This is basic. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, meaning the scriptures predicted and told us that he would die. He would suffer and he would die. And verse 4, and that he was buried. So he didn't just swoon, as some would suggest. He died, died so much that they put him in a grave. He was buried. And this is of first importance, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, how important is that to us? Well, verse 12 in 1 Corinthians Corinthians 15 reminds us. Now, if Christ is preached, this is what we preach, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? What's the implication if there's no resurrection of the dead? If it's physically impossible for the dead to be raised, what's the implication? Paul says in verse 13, if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. And... Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. 
For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. You see how fundamental the resurrection of Christ is to everything we think and believe as Christians. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This is very similar to our text in 1 Thessalonians, isn't it? We believe that Christ died and was raised. If there is no resurrection, Christ has not been raised. You are in your sins and everyone who died hoping in Christ has perished forever. There is no hope. And if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied, which is really a profound statement. If your belief in Jesus is only good for this life, it is worthless. Now, some might quibble with that and say, oh, no, I think believing in Jesus brings all kinds of benefit now. If it can bring benefit now, but not for eternity, then we've misunderstood Christianity. That's the issue. If it's just this life, there's no hope. Interesting in 1 Corinthians 15, do you know where Paul goes next after arguing for the resurrection as being fundamental to Christianity? The return of Christ. Verse 20, now Christ has been raised from the dead and he is the first fruits. He is the guarantee of those who are asleep in Christ, those who've died in Christ. He's the first fruits. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. How will they be made alive? When will they be made alive? Verse 23, each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits. First fruits is just a word that says he's the guarantee of more to come. After Christ, those who are Christ's, when? At his coming and then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power when he returns there is a resurrection of those who are in Christ you say well how is he going to take all of this and hand it over to the father well he explains that he must reign when he comes back And he raises the dead. He must reign, it says. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And when he has finalized that, he hands it all over to the Father. And God becomes all in all. What sparks that great movement of Christ's reign What sparks that great movement of his finality where he brings all things together? It is none other than the resurrection of the dead of those who are in Christ. That begins and ushers in the whole thing, which is exactly what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians 4. So if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, now I want you to go to to chapter 4 again and look carefully at what he says about this it's not what you might expect him to say if we believe that Jesus died and rose again you almost expect him to say then he will come and raise those who are in Christ Jesus but he doesn't say that 
He does not say he will come back and raise those who are in Christ, does he? Doesn't say that. Even so, God will not raise, but what? Bring with him. Bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This brings us back to his coming. If Jesus died and rose, that is the guarantee that when he comes again, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, how in the world is he going to bring with him those who have died and been buried? How's that going to happen? Well, that's where verses 15, 16, and 17 come to play to say, here's how it's all going to unfold. Here's how he brings them with him, which is really fascinating. He anticipates the coming of the Lord tied to the surety of the resurrection of Jesus. So if you really do believe in Resurrection Sunday, and we all show up here in our Sunday finest on Resurrection Sunday, as if we really think he did rise from the dead, then you, if you believe that, then you should equally believe He's coming and he will bring with him all, all who have died in Christ. So what is he saying? These circumstances you're going through, these are not the day of the Lord. You know how you know it's not the day of the Lord? Because the Lord has not yet raised the dead who believe in him. That's how you know this is not the day of the Lord. He has not raised those who have fallen asleep in Jesus because to bring them back implies they have been raised. That's a really powerful statement. And it's an indication that Paul believed that the next thing on the timeline was the resurrection of the dead in Christ. What should you be looking for next? What should you be looking for? It's real simple. One of the most powerful statements that God could ever make, and that is to raise the dead who have believed in Christ to life and catch them up to himself in the air to be with him. That's essentially what he's saying. These aren't the days of the Lord, of the the days of God's wrath, because that hasn't happened yet. That's what's next. Now, just a note here. It's interesting the way Paul phrases this final phrase, those who have fallen asleep in Jesus, it's not the normal way he would write this. If you were to look at this in the original Greek, it's a different preposition than he would normally use to describe the phrase in Jesus. It actually would read that those who have fallen asleep through Jesus, which is really interesting to think about. It's, it's not the, the normal grammatical way he would describe in Jesus as if you simply belong to Jesus, but that you're falling asleep. Those who fell asleep, fell asleep through Jesus. As one Greek grammarian mentioned, this is not an expression of what, what we call ultimate agency. It's not that Jesus put them to death. It's intermediate agency, meaning something else caused their death, but Jesus actually governed that. That is a profound statement. You have relatives who have died from cancer, but Jesus has governed the cancer. 
He oversaw it. You have friends and family who have died from a, a variety of causes, but who governed all of that? It's as if to say, those who die in Christ do not die apart from him. They die as he governs even their death. Which means he's going to bring them back. He governed their death. He will bring them back with him when he returns. It's a really powerful statement. So when the Lord finally returns to the earth to establish his kingdom on the earth, God the Father will bring with Jesus all those who had died. And he will bring them back physically, not just spiritually, physically. Now how's that going to happen? Now if you think through this, if you believe confidently that Jesus rose from the dead, that means you're going to confidently bring, believe that he's going to bring them back with him. So just as a reminder of this point, what should the second coming of Christ do? Well, it should revive confidence in you. It should revive confidence. You have absolute confidence. If he's raised from the dead, he's bringing back our dead loved ones. I have no worries about those who've died in the Lord at all. As sure as Jesus is alive, they will come back with him. That's confidence, isn't it? The second coming should do that in your heart. Now, now how is this all going to happen? That brings us then to the fourth way understanding Christ's return will grow our hope. How will Christ's return grow the Christian's hope? Number four, Christ's return provides perspective. It provides perspective. Again, why why do I say Christ's return provides perspective? Why use that term perspective? Well, Again, put all of your present challenges in line with what you know is going to happen. And when you see what's going to happen, you don't misinterpret the present. This is our whole problem today. We're looking at all the things going on around us and so many people are losing hope. Why do you lose hope? Why? Why do you keep watching the news and thinking it's all lost? Why do you keep getting so frustrated when the political process does not yield what you think it should yield? Don't you know that the Lord, the sovereign God, is moving every single piece on the global puzzle exactly in the line where he wants it and he's going to come back and that is sure just as sure as Jesus is raised from the dead there's no reason to lose hope so put everything that's going on in the world into perspective now be careful with that because don't just read your newspaper into the bible be careful with that I remember back in the 80s how Lindsay was reading Apache helicopters into Revelation 9 What do you do now in the 2020s? Apache helicopters, that's old technology. I remember when Gorbachev and his mark on the head, you remember that? I've got books in my my library. Gorbachev's dead. Now what are you going to do? Don't read the newspaper into it. Just don't be surprised with, with what's unfolding. Be careful with that. I know there's a lot of people on Christian, so-called Christian TV, making a lot of money off a lot of people by predicting what's happening in the news is actually what is happening by detail in the Bible. Be careful with that. 
don't do that. But just stand back and say, I don't have to worry about all of that because I know what's coming. It gives me perspective. So what's coming? Because perspective sees the details of how this will all unfold and then unleash the day of the Lord. Well, there's two principles that define this perspective that helps us to have hope. What are these two principles that he lays out? The first principle is this. The dead in Christ are resurrected first. That's simple, isn't it? But that's next. That is next. The dead in Christ are resurrected first. And if you're worried about those who've fallen asleep in Christ, don't worry. They get to see it all unfold first before anyone else. That's what he says in verse 15. At the end of 14, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Well, how's he going to do that? Here's how he does it. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. And I take this to mean that Paul is giving us new revelation. I say this by the word of the Lord. Some might suggest that, well, what he's doing is quoting something that Jesus said from the Gospels. Well, the problem is when we look at the gospel accounts, we don't find these details that are listed in 1 Thessalonians 4 in the gospel accounts. They're very different. So this is likely something new that Paul and the New Testament prophets are bringing to the eschatological table. It's kind of like the Old Testament prophets. When they talked about the coming of the Messiah, they looked at the coming of the Messiah as a whole. They simply predicted the coming of Messiah and that included in it his first coming and the virgin birth and his atonement and his suffering and his resurrection. It included that and it also included his second coming as well. It's kind of like when you look at a series of mountain peaks perhaps from the air or even from the ground and you're seeing just these vast mountain peaks and you can't really appreciate how much distance there is between each peak. Well, each event in the life of Christ, the Old Testament prophets would talk about, but they didn't necessarily put it in a perspective that we could see or appreciate how much time came between each of those. So for example, the Lord comes in his virgin birth and how much time elapses before that and the suffering? Well, at least three years. And after his atonement and his being caught up into heaven, how much time has there been before the coming of the Lord in his second advent? Well, we're here 2,000 years removed. Well, the prophets did not necessarily predict it that way. They simply talked about the coming of the Lord in all of its fullness. Likewise, the New Testament prophets do something similarly. They give us the details or they give us some of the high points of what's coming, but they don't unpack all of the vast time array that could be between all of these issues. So here Paul is saying, let me give you some of that. Let me provide some of that new revelation for you. Here's fresh revelation. I say this by the word of the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who are dead in Christ, they will rise first. We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There's some fascinating details here. Did you notice that Paul includes himself here, at least potentially, with those who are living when the Lord returns. We, he says, 
We who are living. You say, well, does that mean Paul was wrong because the Lord didn't come? I don't think he was wrong. You say, well, does that mean that Paul expected something else, that the coming is referring to something else other than the final return of Christ? I don't think so because he's going to use this to describe and usher in the ultimate day of the Lord, which brings in the fullness of God and Christ and summing up all things. You say, well, was he, did he just miss it? He, he was hoping for it, but it didn't happen? No, I, I think he really thought that this could happen in his lifetime. In fact, I think this shows us that he believed the next event to happen was the dead to be raised because he expected that he could be alive if that occurred. We who are alive, that could be me, but it's anyone who's alive when the Lord returns. And he actually speaks it of here, the coming of the Lord. What does that refer to? Well, we want to allow the, the text itself to describe what the coming of the Lord entails. So if you were just to find that phrase, the coming of the Lord, the parousia is the Greek term, parousia. If you just trace that in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, here are the events connected to the coming of the Lord. Just jot them down. In 2.19 of 1 Thessalonians, the coming of the Lord is referred to where Paul finds his greatest joy in the Thessalonians in the presence of Jesus at his coming. So there's something final there. The parousia is the Thessalonians in front of Jesus at his coming. He defines that even further in chapter 3 verse 13 when Paul describes a confirmation of the Thessalonian Christians in the presence of the Father, likely that means in heaven, and they are confirmed as complete at the coming of Jesus. So there's some kind of confirmation of the believers in the presence of the Father at the coming of Jesus. Then we have chapter 4, verse 15. Those who believed and had died, they will be raised first at the coming of Jesus Christ. So there's a resurrection of the believing dead at the coming of Jesus. In chapter 5, verse 23, there's a prayer that Paul prays that all will be kept and made complete without blame when the Lord comes in the coming of the Lord, that he will protect us without blame when the Lord returns. If you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, The coming of the Lord there also includes this phrase, our gathering to him. So the coming refers to our being gathered to him as is described in 1 Thessalonians 4. In 2 Thessalonians 2.8, this word parousia refers to the one who is restraining now, he says in chapter 2 verse 7. There's someone who is restraining now, he will be taken away and then one known as the lawless one will be revealed and the lawless one is the one that the Lord will slay with his coming. So the coming refers to the slaying of a lawless one on the earth that the Lord slays when he comes. Now just taking that, how many different events are associated with the coming of the Lord? Quite a few, quite a few. Just like the coming of the Messiah in the, as predicted in the Old Testament, 
had many different events associated. So this word, this phrase, the coming of the Lord, has many different events associated with it as as well. I would suggest to you that the coming of the Lord includes what I would refer to as translation. And that's what we see in chapter 4, where believers, whether dead or alive, are translated into heaven, into the air, as he says here, then confirmed before the Lord. There's confirmation of believers in heaven. There's also tribulation that occurs in judgment that culminates in the day of the Lord. That's associated with the coming of the Lord. There's retribution that comes as well in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 at the coming of the Lord. There's a coronation of Christ when he returns to the earth, slays the lawless one and sets up his kingdom on the earth. Revelation chapter 19 mentions that as well. There's also consummation connected to the coming of the Lord when he conquers all of the nations of the earth and then gives everything back to the Father that Revelation 20 and 21 and 22 speaks of as well as 1 Corinthians 15. So there's many different events that comprise more than just one day or one event. That's important to keep in mind. Because all of these events are described by the coming of the Lord, referring to what we would look at as the second coming. So if you put all of that into perspective with what is said in verse 15, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, until the events connected to the coming of the Lord begin, what is next for Paul? What does he see coming next? What happens next? What is next for Paul is the gathering of believers and he even expects that that could be in his own lifetime. And I would suggest to you that is incredibly hopeful. How do you get your grief dispelled? Put put your grief in perspective to what's happening next. You lose a loved one, what is next for them? Resurrection. Resurrection, they will be first. And that unleashes all the events connected to the coming of the Lord. That's incredibly hopeful. We have no need to be concerned in any way about those who have died believing in Jesus, that they have missed anything in regard to the coming of Christ. Because no one will precede them in being gathered to the Lord. In fact, he uses the most intense form of negation in the Greek language here. There is no possible way that we will come, that we will precede those who have fallen asleep when the Lord comes. The dead in Christ will be the first ones. Now, how's that going to happen? What are the details? Well, he describes them. Look at verse 16. How will it be that the dead in Christ are raised first? The Lord himself will descend from heaven. This is really fascinating. The Lord himself. This is emphatic in the Greek New Testament. It doesn't say that when Jesus returns, it says the Lord himself. The Lord, he himself will descend. Not his angel. Not angels who represent him. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Now, it doesn't indicate here that he descends to earth. In fact, verse 17 says he does not descend to the earth because it says they're caught up to meet him where? In the air. So we know from these verses he does not descend, at least here at this moment, to the earth. 
he descends into the clouds from heaven. But it is Jesus himself. And there are three distinct marks in this text that show us the Lord's descent. I've heard some refer to this as believing in a silent rapture of the church. As I look at these, I don't find anything silent here. Do you? This sounds quite loud to me and unmistakable. How will the Lord descend? First, it says, with a shout. And I might add, if, if I could show you this in the Greek text, each one of these is marked off as a distinct marking of the Lord's return. Each one of these is, is, is distinct from the other. With a shout. The word shout is a, a word that is used many times of a military command, a command to attack. Or it was used of a hunter commanding his, his dogs to go fetch the the, the animal that had been killed, or it's commands from a leader who's on a boat commanding rowers to row in a certain way. It's a shout of command. Perhaps you could think of it like Jesus in John 11 when he stood in front of a tomb and he said to Lazarus, come out, and he appeared. Can you imagine what it would be to hear the command for all of the dead in Christ to raise, be raised from the dead immediately. He says, that's, that's next. This is not the day of the Lord because you know what's next. You're going to hear a shout and the dead will be raised. And it will be the command of the Lord commanding the dead to have life and they come out. In addition to the shout, it is with the voice of the archangel. So the shout may in fact be of the Lord, but this is distinct as well. There is the voice of the archangel of God. There's only one place in the Bible that actually names the archangel. It is Jude chapter 1 verse 9 where it describes Michael the archangel. There could have been several who have held the title of the archangel, though only one is named in the scripture. Jewish tradition said that there were at least seven, and they had names for them even though the Bible doesn't name them. But they say there was Uriel and Raphael and Raguel and Michael and Sariel and Gabriel and Remiel. But we don't have any indication of that in the scriptures, just one. But nonetheless, the voice of the archangel calls the dead to life as well. Third is the trumpet of God. Being a trumpet player, I kind of want to play this one up. I'm going to really resist this, but I do like thinking of God being a trumpet player here, don't you? Not a flute player. I'm going to stop. I'll get into this too much. There's a trumpet signal, which is really biblically significant because in the Bible, the trumpet is often used in regard to the presence of God. You remember when the Israelites were about to receive the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 19, and they go to the base of the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. In Exodus 19.16, it says, It came about on the third day when it was morning that there was thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. It was the presence of God on the mountain. It sounded like a trumpet. When John, in the book of Revelation, hears the Lord Jesus speak, He says in chapter 1 verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, piercing, loud. 
It gains your attention. It sounds like the voice of majesty. Trumpet sounds are also connected to the return of Jesus Christ, the presence of God coming. It's found that way in, in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 1, or Zephaniah 1, 14 through 16, Zechariah 9, 14. You can go look those up, but they all are connected to the return of the Lord, the sound of a trumpet. In fact, if you study the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, there's the sounding forth of seven different angels who have seven different trumpets unleashing seven different phases of the wrath of God, judgment on the earth. Now, some would suggest that this trumpet sound is the same as we find in Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, 31, there's a statement that reads, He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. And some would suggest this is that same trumpet sound that the Lord comes with the the voice of this trumpet and it's the same thing as in Matthew 24 when he sends his angels out to gather the elect. Just a note on that, I would suggest that Matthew 24 is talking about something different than 1 Thessalonians 4. And we know that if you you simply look at the verses surrounding it. 1 Thessalonians 4, as we noted, is the Lord himself coming, right? He's not sending and dispatching all of his angels to round up the elect. Furthermore, Matthew 24 and verse 31 does not speak of the resurrection of the dead. The angels are simply gathering the elect. The resurrection is not mentioned. Also, Matthew 24:31 says that this trumpet sound and this gathering of the elect happens after the days of tribulation, verse 29. After those days of tribulation described earlier in the chapter, and it describes them as a great tribulation, and here's how those days of tribulation are described in Matthew 24, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So preceding Matthew 24, 31, and the trumpet and the gathering of the elect there is a period of trial that the world has never seen, and never will see again, and then comes this gathering of the elect. So I think this trumpet here is not referring to that, that day after that period of trial and tribulation on the earth, but it is first, it is distinct. And notice who will be raised. The Lord will descend himself from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and who will come forth first? The dead in Christ. Interesting, not all the dead. Not all the dead. Not the unbelieving dead. Only the dead in Christ, meaning some will remain in the graves. Only those who are in Christ will be raised from the dead. This is a call of the Lord to the dead in Christ. They will be first to experience the next event that we expect in regard regard to all that's expected in Christ's return. And as you note, there's nothing secret here. There's nothing secret. It's hard to hide a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead being raised. You can't hide that, can you? 
Now, I don't know what the world will interpret that to be, but I do remember an occasion where the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus saw a great light and a voice spoke to him and he understood the voice, yet no one around him understood what was going on. So this wouldn't be the first time that something like that had happened. So something very traumatic, something very shocking will happen and the dead will be raised to life and caught up with the Lord. You don't need to worry about your loved ones who've passed away who knew the Lord, do you? When it's time for the Lord to unleash his coming and all the events associated with it, they will be first. They will be first. Then note the next event so that you get all of this in perspective. Second, the living in Christ are caught away. The living in Christ are caught away. Verse 17, then we who are alive and remain, and again, notice Paul sees himself as potentially a part of that. We who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So we who are alive, which could have included the Apostle Paul or anyone who is alive at that time when this happens. And notice, when will they go up? They will go up together with them. The text is very clear. It's as if in a, in a flash of a second... The dead are raised and together with them, we or those who are still alive are caught up into the air with the Lord. Now we'll be caught up, that phrase is one word in the New Testament. The word harpazo, it's used 14 times in the New Testament, harpazo. It's translated as taken by force in Matthew eleven twelve, or snatched away in Matthew thirteen nineteen, or caught up when Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12 he had been caught up into the third heaven taken by force snatched away caught up it speaks of a snatching of someone by force or violently to seize to snatch someone very quickly the Latin word is the word rapto from which we get the word rapture. So if you ever wonder why people call this the rapture passage, it's simply the Latin word for this Greek term, harpazo. You say, well, rapture is not a biblical term. Correct, it's, you're not gonna find rapto in the Bible. You'll find this word caught up, but again, you're not gonna find the word trinity either. But we believe in that, don't we? We do, it's, it seems it's the biblical the biblical understanding of of the Godhead. So this is simply the catching away, the snatching away of those who are in Christ. Only believers are caught away here. None of the unbelieving world is caught up. Only the believers, and they're caught up in the clouds to a meeting of the Lord. This is really interesting. They are caught up into the air, into the clouds, into the heavens as it were, to a meeting of the Lord. That's how it literally reads. To a meeting of the Lord. As if the Lord has called a meeting. And he has snatched up the believing dead and snatched up those who are alive to this meeting in the clouds in the air. 
Now, some suggest that the, this meeting is a technical term that was used in Greek literature to refer to an official greeting party that would go out and they would welcome and receive a coming dignitary to the city. So before a dignitary got to the city, you'd send out a party and you would meet with them before they got to the city gates and you would bring them back into the city and usher them into the city. And that this word is used in some of those contexts. It's the idea that uh, here, if we applied it to this context, that the dead in Christ and those alive at his coming go out and they meet the Lord, and then they usher the Lord back to the earth, back to the place where he's coming down. I would suggest that's not likely the case. Uh, I, I would see there's good reasons you might believe that, but I think it's not likely the case that there's a group of people who are bringing the Lord back down. As commentator Gordon Fee notes, a recent investigation of this word has demonstrated that this is unlikely, that all the other accoutrements of such a ceremonial reception are altogether missing from this passage. So if this were a technical word to talk about bringing a dignitary in, all the other accoutrements that would be used to describe that are missing here. Secondly, the language used here is not of a greeting party who make their way out to bring the Lord back in. The Lord has come and snatched people away to be with him. So it doesn't seem to fit that idea. He's violently ripped them away from their current context to bring them to himself. So it's not necessarily a greeting party going out to welcome him. And then the text is very clear here. They do not come to the earth. They are in the air. And there's nothing in this text that says that they come to the earth. It might be the assumption, but I would take this to mean that the believers are gathered to the Lord in the air where they remain. They're taken to heaven above the earth until he returns and he brings with them. Remember verse 14, he brings with them all the dead who are in Christ and the saints who come with him. Chapter 3 verse 13. I would suggest this fits what I see as the biblical pattern of the Lord retrieving those who belong to him into heaven where he presents them to the Father, complete in Christ, and the Father begins to unleash his judgment on the earth, described in Revelation chapter 6 through 8, which describes a period of seven years divided into two parts of three and a half years. And even if you took those, those seven years as somewhat symbolic, They're symbolic of a definite period of time broken into definite units of time describing a period when the Lord is pouring out his wrath on the earth. Here the text says we're caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and we shall always be with the Lord. Meaning there is never a time once this gathering has been called that we will ever be apart from the Lord physically. That is fascinating. When this happens, believers will never again be separated from the Lord. We will be with him forever. I take it that this is exactly what Jesus was referring to in John 14. When he said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what does he say? I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, 
you may be also. And where's, where's that? My father's house. That's hope, isn't it? That's hope. What do you believe about those who've died? What's, what's the hope? They're first. They'll be caught up. We'll be caught up immediately after them to be with the Lord constantly in his presence. That should dispel grief. That brings clarity. That, in Christ's return, revives confidence about those who've passed away, provides perspective. We see, we see their death in the chronology of the events to come. Which leads us to the fifth and final way we should understand Christ's return so that we have hope and we grow our hope. Fifth, Christ's return gives encouragement. It gives encouragement. By the way, that's the whole point of studying the return of Christ. It is not to beat your neighbor with your view. And I don't want to do that in mind. I want to lay out what I think is the case. But there are good people who differ on some of these events. And that's, that's fine. That's good. But the whole point behind understanding why Christ is coming, how he comes, what it will look like, is so that you can encourage your fellow believers in the Lord. He is coming. The dead will be raised. We will be with him. We will always be with the Lord. Nothing will ever separate us again. You should not have a lack of hope regarding those who've died. He gives encouragement. We should not avoid talking about the Lord's return because talking about the Lord's return is the chief means we encourage each other to press on, to not lose hope. I think we all long for that, don't we? When he comes, we were just singing about that a moment ago, and everything will be made new. And, and can I remind you, the encouragement is, we will be with the Lord. I hear, I hear a lot of people say, I can't wait to get my mansion. Well, wait a minute. That's not what we're looking forward to. It's not to get my mansion. It's, it's not just to, to see the beauty of the new heavens and the new earth. What will be the focal point of the rest of eternity following all that happens in the return of Christ? The Lord himself will be the very sun that gives light to the new heavens and the new earth and everything will surround him and he will, there's no, no ounce of the earth that will be untouched by his glory. We will be with the Lord. It's not what you get personally, it's who you get. You get the Lord forever. Now, if you got into Christianity wanting something else, you might look at that and say, all I get is Jesus? That's where I want to shake you by the shoulders. Do you know who he is? Do you know who he is? You get the Lord forever. So friends, it's not wrong to visit the grave of a loved one who's passed and to even have a sense of sorrow but could I suggest something when you go to the grave would you open to this passage and read it out loud 
And don't look at the grave as a place of finality for those who've passed in the Lord. You look at it and you expect this is a place of hope and resurrection at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not sinful to weep at a funeral. You feel the sting of death. At the same time, perhaps we should read this text and say, what is next? What is next? Where is our hope? What's our expectation? Sorrow and hopelessness are signs of those who have no hope. Constant, persistent sorrow and hopelessness are for those who have no future hope. That's not those who believe in Christ. When we weep, we dry our tears with the reality that we have Christ in his return. It's why Paul would say, behold, I tell you in a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In, the, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. Who will be changed? We who believe. We will be changed. This perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. How does the coming of Christ grow our hope? Oh, it should be obvious. I hope you're longing for him. Bow together in prayer with me. Father, I pray for those who are in the room this morning who do not have any assurance that their life is hidden in Christ, that they are disciples of the Lord Jesus. I pray for them that you would show them, even right now, what it looks like, what it means to have hope in Jesus. Show them they need such confidence in Christ or they face a future that is hopeless. I pray you would convict their hearts of their sins so that they would call out to you and embrace you by faith and in anticipation. And for us who know you, Lord, we, we pray that our heart is guarded from despair, from hopelessness, from discouragement. No matter what that discouragement might look like, you're coming The dead will be raised. It will be an unbelievable moment. The living in Christ will be caught up to join them in the air to be with you forever. Shown to the Father as complete, returning with the Lord to the earth to reign alongside of him. Overcoming the nations who oppose you and ushering in the new heaven and the new earth. 
Oh, Father, I pray that there would be tangible, specific ways we encourage one another with these thoughts and that believers are growing their hope in you. Father, I pray for us now as we remember Christ and what he accomplished on the cross that gives us such hope for the future. As we take of the elements and as we openly identify ourselves as believers in Christ, I pray we would do so with great hope, expectation, and anticipation. Help us to confess our confidence in him. Help us to anticipate with great clarity, without wavering, steadfast feet, that our labor that we have now for him is not in vain, but is in anticipation of eternal fruit to come. We pray for this help and this hope to guard us in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask the men who are going to